Guys, this is Ben. This is Ben. How's it going? It's going great. I've uh, I've been moving for three days straight, so this is a, uh, a welcome change of pace. Ah, definitely. Yeah, moving pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, it is. So uh, here's my expectation for the next hour. I'm going to go from a relative novice about Elasticsearch to being educated in, in your school of Elasticsearch thinking. Okay. Uh, how's that sound in terms of a game plan? Yeah, it sounds great. All right. Well, why don't we why don't we start uh, with you before we get to Elasticsearch? Why don't you introduce yourself? Okay. Um, well, I um, kind of came into programming uh, in a non traditional route. I actually um, I went to art school and kind of started as a graphic designer, um, and I ended up getting a job as um, like a web layout artist right out of school. Um, and that kind of transitioned into me realizing I wanted to be able to program some of the designs I was making, uh, got into Ruby, and uh, from there it's, I kind of just, you know, fell into programming completely, and uh, I still design sometimes. Uh, I'm kind of like a full-stack developer, I guess. Um, but the majority of my time these days is spent in Ruby, and... Uh, I've been <clears throat> working with startups for the past few years, and so I've definitely gotten my hands dirty with a lot of web projects, and uh, most recently with Qbox, building a uh, platform as a service. So, so help set the timeline for all of this. So, when did you when did you make the switch to full time programming? How long ago? Um, so that would be about uh, five years ago now. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, timeline for programming is sort of funny. I mean, almost no matter what timeline you give, it's, it doesn't sound like that long yet. You know, you mm-hmm. could be doing something for a couple of years and be ahead of the game <laughs> vis-a-vis others. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it was like I just loved it so much that it just kind of consumed me. So I, I probably do have less experience than a lot of people as far as, you know, time goes. But um, <clears throat> I have come a long way in five years of working with Ruby and, you know, databases and all sorts of system-level stuff, so, yeah. Cool. So for how long have you been working with Elasticsearch? Um, with Elasticsearch, it's only been about, um, I guess about a year and a half now. Okay. Well, if you can, and, and wherever we run into your kind of limits around your uh, understanding of Elasticsearch, just say so, but... Let's okay. let's rewind to the begin, beginning of Elasticsearch. How did it come to be? So I um, wasn't around in the very early days of Elasticsearch, but um, I would say it kind of got its start about a year, year and a half before I um, started working with it. And it came out of a group of people that worked on the uh, Spring framework for Java, um, and I've never really used that framework myself, but I've, I've known about it for a while. Um, and a lot of those people used Solar, um, which you're probably familiar with. You know, it's kind of like the big alternative to Elasticsearch. It's just a little older. And, and, and it's also built on Lucene, is that right? Correct, yeah. So both Elasticsearch and Solar are built around Lucene. And so some of the guys um, from the from the spring project started working on Elasticsearch and it was 
mainly Shai Bannon, um, the creator of Elasticsearch. He worked on it by himself for a long time, and then some other people started contributing. Um, and it just kind of turned into this, you know, it was, it was a search engine, but it's almost like it was more than that for them. They, uh, you know, I know Shai specifically, it was like he was creating a new type of database. Um, and it's something that's, uh, it's almost hard to explain to some people sometimes because I, I've used MongoDB, for instance, for a long time. Um, and so I'm very familiar with like NoSQL technologies that store documents in JSON, um, you know, just non-relational databases. And so Elasticsearch made sense to me, but the, the big difference aside from it being a search engine and having really robust search functionality is it has a REST API. So communications with Elasticsearch can all be done with um, URLs and, and HTTP requests. And so that's a huge difference in, you know, in my mind with Elasticsearch and everything else is <clears throat> its its name almost kind of does it at a service because it sounds like it's just a search engine, but I almost think of it like a new, a new database state of the art that you can communicate with over a REST API, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, one of the reasons, maybe the primary reason that I wanted to do this episode right now is I started to use it and had no going in for, for bad reasons. I expected it to be more search centric than it is. I mean, obviously the search functionality is, is good, but, mm -hmm. but the, the other features that you're sort of alluding to were the thing that really caught my attention and caught me by surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, and the ability to take all of the join-heavy queries off the sort of the core relational database and put them onto Elasticsearch seems like a just a massive win in terms of, of increasing the scalability of an application. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, that's where I started to get interested and said, geez, I need to know a little bit, a little bit more. So, so let's talk about Lucene a little bit. <clears throat> My knowledge of, of what Lucene kind of where Lucene starts and ends and where Elasticsearch or Solar takeover is, is limited. So why don't you go through that? Yeah, so, and my technical knowledge of Lucene is, you know, really, really minimal. So I know where it fits in, but I definitely am not a Lucene expert. Um, so Lucene is a library that Apache built, um, and it's, it's a search library. It... Um, <coughs> It, it takes text and, and documents and, you know, breaks it down into the classic inverted index and allows allows you to look up things much faster than you could <clears throat> just grepping through, uh, you know, a list of documents. And so it's, it's really low level. It works at the file system level. So um, there's all sorts of things called... Uh, like segment files and um, all these really, really uh, technical processes that happen to keep those segment files um, the right size so that everything searches quickly. And so, and, and I know I'm kind of butchering the technical description, but Elasticsearch and Solar both act as kind of a wrapper around Lucene. So all the really, really low-level stuff that you have to build for um, a search index Lucene takes care of that. And so in Elasticsearch's case, it almost it's almost the the main thing Elasticsearch does is 
it's a distributed system for using Lucene. Lucene is designed to run on <coughs> one isolated um, virtual machine, and Elasticsearch is, is built to have several nodes of Lucene running. So it, it its its primary objective is to make Lucene scalable. And the user of Elasticsearch, they never really have to worry about Lucene or communicate with Lucene. Um, Elasticsearch provides all these APIs um, for certain search methodology, and Lucene is buried, you know, deep down inside of that functionality. So even myself, I you know, I consider myself very, very well versed in Elasticsearch. Um, I never really mess with Lucene. I just know that it's the core of the engine, so to speak. Gotcha. So how does Elasticsearch then handle the distributed you know, uh, taking Lucene and then enabling it to, to exist in a distributed fashion? Um, it takes a lot of code. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm being familiar with Mongo. Um, I came in to working with Elasticsearch, and I was familiar with um, the entire distributed paradigm for um, database systems, but it's, you know, there's a philosophy... Um, kind of like, you know, a, a set of loose rules for designing distributed systems. And with Elasticsearch, it's um, every node um, of Elasticsearch. A node is just a running process of ES on a server. A, a cluster is just comprised of many of those nodes. Um, and so you can have a one-node cluster. You could have, a, you know, a thousand-node cluster. And it's, it's kind of a democratic distribution there's no there's no single master server uh, you could set it up like that but by default every node acts as an equal member and so there's this voting process for who becomes the master and then every request the state of all those nodes is synced up so there's this consistency behind every request and um, Elasticsearch gives the the power to the user in that situation in the forms of sharding and replication. And so you can design how your data set is split up and copied across all the nodes. So um, <clears throat> a lot of really hairy details probably went into making Lucene distributed. Um, and having heard Shy talk, uh, there was, uh, I was in Boston for an Elasticsearch meetup and he was doing a Q and A and, uh, you know, he said something like, the smaller part of Elasticsearch is, you know, the wrapper around Lucene. The, the big bulk of it is the distributed system itself. So it really is probably the primary focus of Elasticsearch to make it run like that, uh, distributed across several servers. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm real dumb about some of the basics here, so I'm going to ask a, a few stupid questions and mm -hmm. help me out. Okay. So let's say I have a large amount of data, something that would not fit on one server. Mm -hmm. um, how does it handle the sharding of that database across multiple servers? Yeah, so <clears throat> if you, um, and, and you, you do have to kind of have a, some, a plan when you go into it because Elasticsearch isn't going to automatically know how to shard and replicate your data, but um, and, and this is kind of what our main job is at QBox is advising people in these setups. Um, so 
the maximum server size we offer, uh, let's just say you can fit, I think it's like 600 gigabytes of storage. Um, and we have several customers that have multiple terabytes of data. Um, if they decided, our, one of our customers, that they wanted five of the largest servers to fit their several terabytes of data, um, we would walk them through setting up their index. And um, once the cluster is configured and launched and everything's running, you set up your index and you declare how many shards and how many replicas you want. And shards are, it, a shard literally just means a piece of the whole data set. And a replica is just a copy of a shard. So if in that situation they said we have five servers and all this data and only, you know, one-fourth of the data could fit on any given node, they could do a five-shard zero replica setup so that their cluster would basically be a capacity, you know, let's say it's 600 gigabytes times five, their capacity is uh, three terabytes and they have two terabytes of data, they don't really have any room for replicating or copying that data. So in a five-shard zero replica setup, Elasticsearch is going to put an equal size chunk, a piece of the data on each of those servers. And at that point, you're kind of wondering, okay, what's the purpose of replicas? Well, if Elasticsearch has a piece of that data set on every one of the servers and a search request comes in, a search request will come into any one of those nodes. It doesn't matter which it lands at. But at that point, Elasticsearch has to say, okay, the piece of data I'm looking for is on this node. Let's hop over there and then return the results back to the node that received the request. And replicas come into play um, in this situation. If they had more nodes and can fit more of their data, let's say they upgraded to 10 nodes, we could bump the replicas up to one, which would take you from five shards to 10 shards, since one replica just means you're multiplying the shards times two. And so... Now in that situation, if a request comes into a node and that node doesn't have the primary piece of the data that they're looking for, that node may potentially have a copy of that piece of data they're looking for. It may have a replica residing on that server. So increasing the replicas increases the speed in which you can get a, a search result returned. Um, so... <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying not to bog you down with too many technical details. No, I think that's the point. <laughs> if you, uh, in that situation, you had five nodes, five shards. If you increased replicas to four, which is the maximum you could have in that scenario, it's number of nodes minus one, that would mean that every node in that cluster had a piece of the data set and a copy of every piece of the data set. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that a request could come into any node at any given time, and it would have the full data set on hand so that it wouldn't have to be jumping around to search. So let's I'll rewind to the, to the... storage needed to use, and uh, so yeah, what were you saying? I was going to say, so let's rewind to the five shards, no replicas example. Mm -hmm. How does Elasticsearch resolve which server the... Um, or which node the the piece of data that the query uh, matches is on, or or I suppose it could come from multiple. Mm -hmm. And I um, 
I could be technically wrong in my description of how it resolves where that's at, but uh, I'm pretty sure how that works is there, there's no, like, logistical thing that happens where Elasticsearch is like, this node has the piece of data I'm looking for, but the cluster has the synced state, and so a node will know every other node in the cluster, and when a request comes in, a search request, that same one is sent out to every other node in the cluster, and those results are ran, and then they're merged back in a union on their node that received the request. So if there's a five-node cluster, a request comes into one node, the request will be ran on that node and then on all four other nodes. And all that data will come back in and merge as a union. And if one of those nodes you know, has the data, which it obviously should have the data, then you'll have your search results. So there isn't anything that happens on the node that says, hey, I'm going to go look at this node. But that's essentially what it comes down to because the request has to be broadcast to every node and then the one that has it will bring the data back. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I couldn't imagine it working another way because the yeah. it's, it's not like there's any way to know what combination of the nodes would have mm-hmm. matching. Documents. Exactly. But I do believe that um, Elasticsearch with its, its cluster state is able to recognize the replication state of the cluster. So it'll know when it's, it's fully replicated. Um, and when I say fully replicated, that's kind of a loose term to define nodes minus one replicas. So as many replicas as you can have. And in that scenario, the search may only broadcast the request to itself, which greatly you know, reduces response time. Gotcha. All right, so let's talk about inverted indexes or indices, whatever the right way to say that is. Um, So just give the basic overview of how an inverted index works for those that don't know. Okay. So um, searching searching for text is one of the most basic things a computer does. Um, You know, computers are built from the ground up with search in mind. I mean, every time something's pulled from RAM, I mean, there's a search operation happening to find that data. So it's it's something that's been refined and refined and refined since, like, the dawn of computing. And so that's why it's so crazy to work with something like Elasticsearch. It's all those high-level concepts applied. But an inverted search tree, um, so let's say you have, you know, 10 documents and they all have this text of paragraph. It could be 10 files, um, you know, whatever the setup may be. Um, To search for that without an inverted tree, let's say you're trying to find the word dog in 10 of those paragraphs. Well, the only way to do it um, logically without setting up some construct is you just go through each document and search for the text. Um, In you know, computer terms, you, you may be grepping for that text in a directory, um, or, you know, in, in, in MySQL, if you're searching for text in a paragraph, you could do like a like query to match. And, and literally what happens in a like query in SQL, if you're familiar with that, is it'll go through every, every column it has to search and it'll grep for that text. And so you can imagine if you have thousands and thousands of documents, that becomes like painstakingly slow to go through and search 
each of those paragraphs for that word. And so an inverted tree, it's almost like it, it pre-searches things for you so that there's, there's this, um, there's a structure set up for when you do come to search it, it's already done for you. So, um, in practice, setting up an inverse tree would be taking one of those paragraphs that exist in those documents and you would be taking each word um, in, in some process of analysis and, and just for the sake of being simple in this example, let's just say you're splitting words by spaces. So you take a paragraph of words and you tokenize it into an array of words. And so you take out each one of those words in that array and you build this little, um, you can think of it like a Microsoft Excel table. In one column, you have a word that was found in that paragraph. And in the second column, you have an ID, a reference, pointing to that original document. And you do that for every single word in all of those paragraphs of those documents. So when you come to search for the word dog in all those paragraphs, it's exact match. The computer just has to go through and find, you know, the dog ID that's pointing to the paragraph that contains the word. So you don't have to, in the process of executing that search, go through and research all of those paragraphs. So that's like a simple but key idea, right? That all things in Elasticsearch are exact matches to mm -hmm. Elasticsearch. Yes. And there's no, there's no exception to that rule, right? At a low level, that's completely true. At, at a high level, there are things in Elasticsearch like um, prefix matches or wildcards, and so some of that does come into play where you're actually going through and looking at text. But if you're designing a search um, feature of your application, you're designing it correctly, that is that is kind of the paradigm that technically everything is an exact match at a low level. So let's talk about an example of that. So um, one index that I uh, built recently was on postal codes, which I would think would be a common uh, common use of Elasticsearch. Mm -hmm. So when I wanted to be able to match by the full postal code as well as any prefix of the postal code. So why don't you describe kind of the, the process by which uh, you explain to Elasticsearch how to enable that? Okay. So <clears throat> the big thing with defining how your data is going to be searched in Elasticsearch, it's, it's called mapping an index. Um, if you're, you know, familiar with MySQL, any sort of SQL technology, that's kind of what a, a schema is. You're saying that there's a column named this, its data type is this, and that's pretty much as far as it goes with SQL. You tell it a column, you tell it a data type, and you tell it if it's indexed or not. With Elasticsearch, you're telling it, you're telling it a, a column or a field in your JSON document, and you're giving it a data type, string, number, um, IP address, geopoint. There's all these different data types. But then you can, you can tell Elasticsearch how it's analyzed. And um, Elasticsearch, just like all other really popular NoSQL technologies out there, there's dynamic schema definitions. So you can technically boot up Elasticsearch and start indexing documents and not ever worry about creating the index or giving it a mapping because Elasticsearch is going to do that dynamically. <clears throat> and what happens 
when it's assigned dynamically is every field is given the standard analyzer. And every every field of a document in Elasticsearch is expected to have some sort of analysis behind it, how it's going to be broken down for the process or for the purpose of search. And, this, and just, just to be specific about that, so analyzer just means take this set of characters mm -hmm. and spit out a bunch of tokens. Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. So in that last example, when I talked about a paragraph, we take out the words and those are tokens. That's, that's very similar to what the standard analyzer does. And the standard analyzer in Elasticsearch is simply a combination of lower casing, white spacing, and some like common stop words. So when you give Elasticsearch a sentence and you don't tell it, it you don't tell Elasticsearch it has a custom analyzer, it's going to apply the standard analyzer to it and it's going to break that sentence down by white space, it's going to lowercase everything, and it's going to remove certain words like um, and, and uh, of, like really uh, common words, and that's based on you know, the language you're using. So at that point, you have all those tokens. Um, and so at that point, you can, you can search like you would normally. But with zip codes, in this example, you're not going to be able to search by partial zip codes with the standard analyzer. So you're going to need to bake in some custom logic into your mapping to set that up. So... Normally, when you're dealing with something like zip codes, people will tell Elasticsearch not to analyze it because it's, it's actually pretty rare to see an application where you are searching by partial zip codes. Um, more often than not, someone will want a setup where it's like you search for a product somewhere and then maybe it gives you a list of zip codes where it's located. Um, and in that scenario you tell Elasticsearch that you don't want the field analyzed at all because it's a zip code. You know, it's just digits. There aren't white spaces. There aren't common stop words. So you just don't want to analyze. But in, in your scenario, wanting par partial matches on zip codes, there's a special kind of analysis you can do in Elasticsearch. And it's something very common <laughs> with Qbox. We're always helping customers set this up. There's there's an analyzer called an ingram analyzer. And there's there's a lot of analyzers that goes way outside of the scope of this talk because that's probably where the bulk of, you know, obscure Elasticsearch knowledge lives. It's just in different analyzers. An ingram analyzer, it will say, um, you, you'll give it two parameters. You'll say the minimum number of characters for a token and the maximum number of characters for a token, and it'll take a zip code like 72701, and it'll, if you say the minimum number of characters is 2 and the maximum number of characters is 5, it'll break that up into 72277001727270, and you can kind of see what I'm doing there. It's literally breaking up that text into all possible combinations of its of its letters within that word. So, or not combinations, but all the different series of letters. So it gives you a ton of tokens. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of performance-intensive, but sometimes it's the only way you can 
get partial matches. Um, in the example that I was working on, I just needed to have a, um, a like, auto-complete for places exactly. feature. That's what I was just about to say. Our customers are always wanting auto-complete. And this is the way auto-complete is set up because with traditional searches, you know, you go to Amazon and you type in baseball in the search box and it'll go through and match documents on baseball. But for autocomplete, you're typing something in a search box and there's probably some JavaScript for where whenever a key is hit, a request is sent to Elasticsearch with that partial data. So I'm typing in baseball and I hit BAS. If I had the standard analyzer set up, searching for BAS would not return baseball. But with that ingram analyzer, it's going to give me a token BAS for the word baseball. So that's how autocomplete is set up. Um, all those different words like baseball just have all of those little partial tokens set up for exact match. Does that make sense? It does. So I should... Uh... I appreciate that you're teaching uh, me and everyone else some things. I should take a break and, and teach you about something, our first sponsor. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind. All right. So uh, the uh, first sponsor for today's show is uh, Squarespace, everyone's favorite podcast sponsor. Um, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and to get 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com and use the offer code RAILS. So this is fun to me because the uh, the offer code had been spring before, which I thought was a really fun, obscure Rails <laughs> reference. And uh, I guess they are. I'm, I'm going to take this as the inside joke of now going with the absolute most obvious discount code you could possibly imagine, <laughs> which is Rails. Anyhow, so... Uh, go to squarespace.com slash Ruby on Rails. If you use the offer code Rails, then you get 10% off. So a bit more about Squarespace. They are constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust. So you can really create your own space online. Everything is drag and drop, so it's easy to add content from your desktop and even to rearrange elements of content within a page. Squarespace makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can connect to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and other web and social services, and they even have e-commerce uh, right in their platform. So if you want to set up shop and sell things, you can do so in just a few minutes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, there are over 70 Squarespace uh, employees on their customer care team located both in New York City and Dublin. They're open 24-7 for live chat and email support. As I said before, you can try Squarespace for free with no credit card required, and if you decide to purchase, plans start at just 8 bucks a month. They include a domain name if you sign up for a year. You can get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code RAILS. So thanks to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. All right. Okay, so let me tell you a bit more about how I was using Elasticsearch, and then if you could go into the details of, of how uh, one would make that happen, I think it'd be interesting. Okay. So I wanted to find places based on the following. Um, 
postal code prefixes, um, the primary city name for the place, um, the alternate alias names for a place. You know, some cities have, you know, the, the official post, well, like the, the town that I grew up in. The official um, name for the town is Voorheesville. And then there is another name that would be legitimate if you put it on a letter called Reedsville. So I wanted to be able to search for either of those. And I'd say half the postal codes in the country have some sort of alias. Um, even if it's just like Mount Laurel spelled M-O-U-N-T Laurel and then M-T Laurel. That would be mm-hmm. an example. Um, I wanted if the user um, typed like uh, New York comma N-Y for the NY to match the uh, state, or if they typed in, you know, New York comma New York for it to match the state and the city. Mm-hmm. Um, ditto on country. But you get the idea. So I've got mm-hmm. some number of columns. If this was a sort of normalized model, there would be a couple tables where all this stuff was coming from, but obviously it's sort of flattened out for, for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want for them to be able just to type in you know, 12186 comma US or Voorheesville comma, you know, spelled out New York and have it, it, it all work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, walk through kind of the, the various features of Elasticsearch, if you don't mind, that would come into play to make that happen. Yeah, definitely. So, and this is something I, I think you're seeing a lot more of, uh, these days with applications. Um, Used to a search, um, and you'll still see it on a lot of search boxes, you can type in some query text, and then you can select what you're searching for. So um, you'll, in your situation, if you know this application was developed seven or eight years ago, you probably would have had a search box, and you would have had a drop-down that said, I'm searching by zip code, I'm searching by city, I'm searching by city and state. And so that would give you kind of a hard-coded way to know what field values you were searching for. Um, and, and that's kind of where Elasticsearch comes in and, and why it's being used so much lately is when you take out that drop-down where you're selecting what you're searching for and you're just expecting the user to type something in and your system is going to not only give them results, but before it gives them results, it's going to know how to search um, based on what they've typed, you're kind of getting into this domain of natural language processing. And, you know, you could you could develop your heart out for years and years developing an NLP framework to break down user query text, but it's been done over and over, and it's, and it's a really complex system just to achieve that, that step before you search. You know, it, it's almost like taking user input and building a a structure to search the data for. Well, with Elasticsearch, you can kind of get around that whole middle step where you're, you're trying to interpret what the user is really trying to say, and you can just analyze your data and search it in a way that it's, it's hitting all those fields at the same time. So in that specific example, you would probably define <clears throat> custom mappings, um, a custom analyzer on each of those fields separately. Um, and, and since you're probably wanting prefix match in general, what you may end up doing is you might have this one kind of blanket analyzer for all the text that 
you know, it lowercases stuff, it splits it by white space, and it gives you those little partial tokens we were talking about. So, you know, if the zip code is 10011, it'll give you 10 and 100 and so on. And so you set all that up. At that point, you have everything mapped and analyzed how you would like. You're going to have to build in the query component from the search box. And so the way you would probably go about setting it up first is you would just have that that input field search all the fields by default. Um, Elasticsearch, you can say, you know, here's a query, and you can tell it which fields to search on, or you can tell it to match multiple fields, or you can tell it just to search all of the fields. And in your situation, you'd probably tell it to search multiple fields, um, zip code, city, state, and you may have a field for, like, alternate name or something like that. <coughs> and you would you'd probably get pretty good results out of the box. So let's say one of your users types in um, New York, comma, NY, and then gives essentially a partial zip code because let's say you're storing, you know, the full, uh, I can't remember how many digits it is, like a full 10-digit zip code, and someone gives you a five-digit. With your custom analyzer you've set up that has partial tokens, that result or that query on its own, if you went the build-your-own-natural-language processing route, you could say, okay, here's a comma, here's two words that come before the comma with no digits, that's obviously a city they're searching for. It's not, you, you skip that entire component with Elasticsearch and you just say, give me the best match for all these terms on these three fields I'm searching, or these four fields I'm searching. And results are, you know, with, with databases typically, you can query your result set and it'll give you the subset of the data that matches, but then how that data is sorted is completely up to you. Um, you know, with SQL, it's order by. Um, Mongo, you can sort things a certain way. But with Elasticsearch, you can sort results just like any other database, but the default sorting is based on relevance, you know, which is obviously a huge thing for search applications, how relevant a document is to the query text. And with your setup, that user types in, even if they misspell the crap out of it, you know, they just misspell the word New York, they give you, I don't know, NYK for the state abbreviation, you're still going to get a great match, and probably the top match is going to be a document for New York because Elasticsearch is going to go through and add up the scores for all those partial matches on those tokens, and New York's going to be at the top of those results. So, so, so let's talk a bit about the tokenizing of the query itself, because I think we skip by that. Because mm-hmm. it seems like a key idea here. Definitely. Yeah, so, and, and this is something I'm always walking customers through, and it's something that confused me um, when I started Elasticsearch, Analysis happens when you index a document. So <clears throat> New York is broken down into you know, lowercase new and York, and those are stored alongside the document. But at the same time, if in your mapping you just say, this field has this custom analyzer tied to it, you just say analyzer equals my custom analyzer. 
the document's going to be analyzed with that analyzer and the query text that comes in to match that field will also have that same analyzer applied to it. And so it is a very, very key idea because if only the document text was analyzed, if a user came in and typed capital N, EW, um, it wouldn't match New York if only it was only analyzed on the document side because the, the document with New York would have two lowercase tokens for new and York, but if the query text wasn't analyzed, a capital N EW isn't going to match a lowercase NEW. So uh, uh, by default, when you apply an analyzer to a field, that means that both the document contents itself will be analyzed that and the receiving query text. However, a you can expand on that and in the mapping, you can say that the index analyzer is this, and the search analyzer is this. Um, <clears throat> so you can define the way the query text is analyzed and the way the contents are analyzed. And more often than not, you're probably going to want the query text analyzed the exact same as the contents of the document, but there are really involved situations where you don't want that. And in your example... Has actually a great example, you wouldn't want the query text analyzed with the same analyzer because if you're using <coughs> that ingram analyzer on the document contents, it's going to break that zip code down into all those little partial tokens. But if a user searches with a zip code, even if it's a partial zip code, you don't want their query text broken down into all those tokens. Um, I'm trying to give like a an example I could think of here. It's like if you were you were uh, analyzing this field in a document, just the title of a product, and let's say it was um, a, a washing machine or something you're searching for. Well, the query text would be broken down into all those little tokens like WA, WAS, um, ASH. Your top result could be something like water massage chair. Do you, does that make sense? Like, oh yeah, sure. I mean, it'd be like uh, if someone said that they wanted to have steak and lobster and wine, you know, in it, but you match steak or lobster or wine, and that's not what they said. Exactly. And so, in, in in that situation, you would want to break down all those fields with the ingram analyzer you had built, but you would want the query text probably just to have the standard analyzer. Um, so that when they search for New York, they're searching for New York, and they're not searching for N-E-Y-O-R-O-R-K, you know. So um, that actually is a really good example of when you would want the contents analyzed differently than the query text matching it. So then what if I, um, another real example from postal codes is, uh, generally people are searching for places that have a, decent sized population. Mm-hmm. Now, not always, but uh, that's like a good guess that mm-hmm. you'd, you'd rather put the places that have lots of people that live there in, at the top of the list, all other things being equal. How, uh, tell, tell me about how to go about sort of uh, ju- juicing the order based on an idea like that. Definitely. Um, there there are, are several ways you could go about this. Um, 
most people would hear that and they would say, you know, you're talking about field boosting where something's more important than this. Um, and you could do it with field boosting, but I hear that and I, I hear custom scoring. Um, and, and like I just told you, scoring is a huge part of Elasticsearch because it determines the order of the documents, how they're returned. Um, so in your situation, let's say you have all that set up we just talked about. Your partial matches are working, autocomplete. Someone can search for a city, state, zip code. They can have great matches. Um, but if you were wanting someone to be able to search for, let's say, a restaurant, and you wanted the restaurants that are in the most densely populated areas to come up first, a way you could do that is, in the query, you would define this custom score. And you have access to the base score variable that represents the relevance of the document to that query. But you can define this little script um, that would say something like, give this document a score that's higher for how populated its zip code is. And you would obviously, you know, you would have to store something in the index somewhere that represented the population of a place. But you could define this like almost virtual field that at query time it would say this document receives a higher score because not only does it match the user's query text, it's also in a very densely populated area. So you would, you would literally have this, this script score in Elasticsearch and it would, it would look something like, um, the base score of the document, um, multiplied by this custom population density score. And so it wouldn't completely reorder your results with the top being the most populous but it would take the score that already has for relevance and it would multiply that by this population score you've got. So it'd be like, like the population score could be like population divided by a thousand or some such thing. Yeah. And, in, in uh, so many ways you could set that up, but a custom score would be what you're looking for. And there are, are tons of great tutorials on custom scoring in Elasticsearch. Um, it's a, it's a pretty involved, um, it's, it's a pretty involved feature of Elasticsearch when you get down into it, but um, I think it's a really common application in practice where people are needing results boosted by certain fields. Um, there's a great tutorial by one of the Elasticsearch engineers where it talks about searching for jobs, but you only want the jobs that are the most recent, the closest, mm -hmm. and 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 there's this crazy script you can do to get the scores to work like that. And so, yeah, that's a big part of Elasticsearch for sure. Cool. So I want to talk more about query strings in a second, but before I do that, I should do our second sponsor. Thank you. Um, second sponsor today is CodeShip. Uh, CodeShip makes continuous deployment simple. You can set up uh, your continuous integration server in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks like Ruby on Rails, but many others. You can easily integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket for code hosting, and then deploy to cloud services or your own servers. Uh, start out with CodeShip's free plan, and setup only takes three minutes. Find CodeShip online at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. That's codeship.io 
slash 5x5ruby uh, and use the offer code 5x5ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. So you get the free plan to start with, then if you want to sign up, you can uh, knock 20% off their very reasonable prices for the first three uh, three months. You can find out more uh, on their blog at blog.codeship.io to get updates. And on their website, they've got a nice few-minute video that uh, gives you a tour of what they're all about. So, again, I'd like to thank Codeship for sponsoring the Ruby on Rails podcast this week. Check them out at codeship.io. All right. So there are there are a couple ways to send queries into um, Elasticsearch. There's query string syntax, and then like a, a JSON syntax. Mm-hmm. Can you just give like the the quick um, overview of of the difference between those two? And then I wanted to ask some questions about the query string syntax. Yeah. So in a a full implementation of Elasticsearch in an application, you're probably going to be using the JSON body version of querying. Um, and and that's just due to the limitation of URL parameters, mostly. Um, you can query an Elasticsearch endpoint by, you know, hitting your index name slash underscore search, and then you can just say parameter Q equals and then you give it your query. What Elasticsearch will do with that by default is it will interpret it like you were doing a, a, a typical JSON query body, but it'll be using the, um, the query string query. And there's several different types of queries, and it's a huge point of confusion for um, people new to Elasticsearch. Um, but the query string... The query string query is, is normally something that you don't necessarily want, want to rely on. Um, it is like directly exposing the Lucene query string syntax, which people are, are probably a little familiar with because it almost looks like Google's syntax, um, you know, capital ands and ors, and you can put things in quotes and negate things. But if you're using Elasticsearch and building it into an application, you're probably not wanting that default query string. You're probably wanting more specific, more explicit definitions of how things are being searched. And okay, so this is why I brought this up. I'm so happy you answered that way. So I, I saw that um, kind of wisdom online, and then I read the documentation and I found the, the query string syntax for at least some number of applications, not everything, to be, like, way preferable. And I was wondering what I was missing. Because clearly, you know, you know what you're talking about. Other people that had written articles that I read seem to know what they're talking about. I trust my own judgment and came to a different conclusion. So what am I missing? So you, you're, you're pretty much right. And, and I had that same kind of situation because before we had started building QBox, I had built Elasticsearch into an application and I was using the query string operator. And I read an article, someone was like, you probably don't want to use the query string query because that exposes direct Lucene syntax. And I was just like, well, it seems, it seems to work for me. And so I don't really understand. And that's more a product of Elasticsearch just kind of works for 
for most of your just basic search needs, you could not even define mappings on your fields. Just let Elasticsearch dynamically define everything, and you could use the Lucene query string, and you would probably have great results, and it would be worlds better than your previous implementation on you know SQL or whatever it may be. <clears throat> but the reason people say that is the Lucene query syntax is very, very explicit. Um, it's, it's easy to write a query string that will break the request because if something isn't put in parentheses properly, um, if something, you know, is it capitalized properly or whatever it may be, the query is going to fail because the Lucene syntax is very, very rigid. Um, and so even without using just the Q equals in the, the URL, you can say that you want Elasticsearch to use the query string syntax. But what's recommended in Elasticsearch is to use your own custom mapping. So instead of doing query, query string, this text is going to look like query, match, field name, this value. And so when you, when you use the match query API, that's when it has access to your custom mappings. Um, and, and that's how you tell Elasticsearch to know how to break things down. If you tell Elasticsearch to use the query string operator, it's going to interpret that query with the Lucene query parser. So it's, it's a, almost a whole different thing you're doing. Um, it's like you're passing your query text to Lucene for Lucene to validate and operate on it. Whereas if you're using all the other query APIs, you get completely away from that Lucene query syntax, and at that point you're relying solely on how that query text matches your document. You don't have to worry about the query text being a valid query string for Lucene. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. So, okay, I, uh, let me describe how I use query string in a real application, and then you tell me how it was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, so, have you used Twitter's um, type ahead and Bloodhound libraries for type ahead? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. So, I was using those for a... a uh, type ahead box on an application, and mm -hmm. it was this this postal code place type ahead, and uh, the service that it was connected to was uh, one of the applications in the sort of constellation of applications, like one of the services in in an application I was building that handles geography, and that application had a had a you know postal codes endpoint that would return. Postal code matches, mm -hmm. uh, or just the index, or an individual postal code via a JSON API. And anyhow, so in Bloodhound, I set up that as a source, and then would tokenize the the query being typed by the user to search the combination of um, fields that I was interested in matching. So like either the postal code or the alias name or the alternative alias name or the state name or, you know, all those guys mm -hmm. and just constructed that, you know, or query with the boosting in a query string and just fired it up to, in other words, I sort of like broke up, I tokenized the input, constructed a query string that was, you know, nice, pretty long by the end of it, I suppose mm -hmm. that would, uh, 
generate the or query, the, the sort of Lucene syntax or query that I wanted to use for this particular type of head, which would be different than others. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I wanted to have all of that definition sort of external to the server and just put it in the, the use of the JavaScript library mm-hmm. that I was using. But yeah. good, good idea, bad idea? Um, it's, it's almost really subjective because what you're talking about is actually kind of different from when people say don't use Lucene query syntax. It's different from the scenario you're describing. We actually had a customer very recently where he sent me some of his .NET code for how he was constructing a query. And I look at it, and there's all these conditionals in Java that's like, if this is a part of the query, append this to this string. If this is a part of the query, append this. And what he was doing was he was building up a Lucene query. Um, and he was familiar with Lucene, um, and, and I wasn't aware of that. And I just I said something like, you know, the first thing I see off the bat is you're building up this crazy query string and you could be doing all of this stuff without all of these conditionals. You could be building a, an API, a, a query body for Elasticsearch itself and not have to build up this crazy string. And the excuse he gave me was, I don't like the Java framework I'm using for Elasticsearch and so I'd rather just build up this string because it's easier. So... It's, it's different because when, when people write articles that say don't use the Lucene query string, they're saying that because people will set up an application that will take the text from the search box and that text itself will be the query string. Oh, and that, that's a bad idea because a user doesn't necessarily know Lucene query syntax. And so if they type a uh, open parentheses that a closing parentheses or something like that, it's going to break the search. But in your scenario and the customer I was just describing, you are building the query string for the user as a part of your application. So it's, it's less of a good idea, bad idea. It's more of a you were just doing what you could be doing in the request body of Elasticsearch. You're just doing that with a, a raw Lucene query. Gotcha. So, so to kind of paraphrase what you said, if it's the, the developer that's doing, uh, constructing the, the query, whether it's a, the JSON format or a query string is kind of a matter of preference. If it's just passing through what the user said, don't pass through a query string because it's going to be fragile. Exactly, yeah. And um, if I was one of the Elasticsearch engineers, I would probably have a much, much longer description. Like, I would probably say something like, that's what Elasticsearch is for. We give you all of these, um, all of these digestible APIs, these things that are easy to understand, and it all it composes a Lucene query for you. So, if I was an ES developer, I would probably say, you know, why not just use Lucene or something like that? If, but I mean, as being who I am and how I use Elasticsearch, the answer really is it's a matter of preference. I think a lot of the reason why the query string syntax appealed to me in that particular situation and in something else I'm working on is that it's it's kind of terse, and if you're a Ruby programmer, you're used to things being kind of terse, mm-hmm. and so it kind of works. It, it looks right to me in the rest of, like, it, it, it pairs well with Ruby and, and CoffeeScript. 
Yeah, definitely. If I was writing Java, you know, then I think having, you know, more uh, verbose JSON uh, documents describing would probably feel a little bit more natural in the in mm-hmm. the code than than it does. Definitely, that's my guess, at least. All right. Well, I know that uh, we've been going for about an hour. I don't want to shortchange Qbox because you were so kind to as uh, give uh, an intro to all of us about Elasticsearch. So, tell me a bit about Qbox and what it does. Okay. So, Qbox is um, managed dedicated hosting for Elasticsearch. So we don't do anything on top of Elasticsearch. Um, Qbox itself, we take care of all the low-level system stuff. Um, Elasticsearch, you could get on your home, your your work laptop, you could download Elasticsearch, and you could have it up and running in seconds, um, you know, what it, depending on your package manager. Um, but when you go into production and you have several gigabytes of data or, God forbid, several terabytes of data, you're going to need a big cluster of Elasticsearch nodes. And there are details to that process that would make you want to pull your eyes out, and that's where we come in. We automate all of that server, um, all that server configuration, all the security, the firewalling, um, you know, disk partitions. We take care of all that low-level system stuff. So you literally sign up. You can say you want this size Elasticsearch cluster, and then you have an endpoint that you can start working with Elasticsearch with. So, uh, what sizes? Uh, what sizes your sweet spot? Small, big, somewhere in between. Um, as far as um, the size of the cluster. Yeah, like if someone says, "Okay, I want to have." Um, I have a you know ten thousand documents, some something small, a mm-hmm. ten thousand document um, data set that I want to, uh, or for that matter, a two hundred uh, document data set that I want to use Elasticsearch for because I like the I like the power of of what it enables query wise, versus someone that's got a you know a ten million document repository that they want to do free text search on, wh- which is more of the sweet spot. So, um, as far as our customer base, just, just being in the hosted space in general, our most, uh, the thing we see to be most common is, is people spinning up very small one node clusters and they're usually testing or in development. And, um, the smallest node we offer is, is a rack space node and it's half a gig of RAM. And half a gig of RAM, I, I definitely would never recommend to anyone running their production application on that small of an Elasticsearch cluster. So we get a lot of people using those boxes for testing and development. But when it gets into production, our sweet spot is really um, a two-node cluster with each of the nodes having about a gigabyte of RAM. And so... I would say probably on average, our customers have 100,000 documents. But we have customers that have as little as 600 documents, and we have customers with as many as 600 million documents. And so that kind of is a testament to the scale of Elasticsearch, not only huge scale, but it it scales down to very small data sets and still gives you that query power. So our our most common cluster we see is probably a two-node one to two gigabytes setup. 
Gotcha. So I'm looking at that while you're talking. I'm looking at the uh, plan page, and it looks like you offer hosting on Amazon Rackspace or Softlayer. So mm-hmm. tell me a bit more about uh, why the the multiple options. That seems a little unusual for hosted providers. Yeah, and, and that is something that people, I think it strikes them as unusual. Um, when we originally built Qbox, we did it all on Rackspace. Um, and it was it was kind of a different model. Um, there was a lot of shared resources and like custom namespacing and routing, so that um, we could house several customers on one big cluster. Um, so we we drastically changed that because we realized one day that there were more limitations to that than we ever thought there would be, and, and we wanted to go this route that allowed you to provision completely isolated VMs on the cloud of your choice. And so most people see this list of EC2, Rackspace, or SoftLayer, and they're, they think it's almost like a, a just obscure choices. But the benefit is that each of our customer, each of our cluster, clusters has a private IP for access. And that private IP is the internal IP of the data center. So if you're hosting your application in U.S. East 1 on Amazon, you can spin up a cluster with us in U.S. East 1, and you can communicate with your cluster over the private network. Um, we don't charge customers for data transfer, so it, it's not like it saves you cost, but it saves you a ton of network travel time. So you really, really improve the speed of your cluster if you launch a cluster in the same data center. So that's the default Heroku um, location, right? I believe so, yes. So if, if if someone had an app or set of apps hosted on Heroku and they wanted to minimize latency, then they could pick Amazon EC2, you know, US East 1, and the latency would be just whatever it is between the boxes in the same exact data center. Exactly, yeah. Have you guys put out a, a blog post or anything that sort of details what the, what the range of latency is? experiences would be then for someone that co-locates their, you know, say Heroku dinos with their Qbox clusters versus, you know, going out to Rackspace from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we haven't. That, that's the thing that's, that's been on our to-do list for a while. We, we want to make not only um, a, a chart that kind of shows the, the latency reduction um, when choosing the same data center, we, we also really, really want to provide a cohesive list of load tests that show like what the size of clusters can support theoretically. Um, and we are working on that. It's, it's something that's, it has been happening for several months now because we realize the importance of information like that. Um, it's just something we haven't done yet, but I completely agree. We would love to have that information available. Well, especially with, you know, the way that I'm using Elasticsearch is to, to, to take a lot of the query and I guess what would be complicated joins off of the, the kind of canonical database and relational database and instead push it into Elasticsearch because the performance is way better and it's more built for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the latency matters given that those queries are related to not just sort of you know, free text search where the performance expectations would be, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but rather to kind of in place of in database joins. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so it seems like important information if you're using it in that way to, to understand. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And, um, you know, right now what, what we kind of see is, uh, we, we have QBox. It's our, it's our main, um, it's the main leg of our business, but we also provide consulting alongside, uh, QBox and, uh, a really, really common thing, uh, we see is, is people just being shocked. Um, you know, they'll give us their crappy Magento website and they'll say, our search is really, really bad. I mean, it takes like 10 seconds and we'll make it 10 milliseconds and it will blow their mind in half. Like they just couldn't fathom that it could have been that fast. And so we don't have that data, but we've built up a, a pretty impressive collection of case studies that we're actually going to publish on the site pretty soon that shows how much we reduce, um, and mostly coming from SQL um, searches, how much we reduce the response time. So hopefully we'll have a lot of information like that out here pretty soon. Yeah, I think that's cool. And I think, you know, having a combination of case studies that show the the benefits of Elasticsearch itself, which, is, which are amazing, mm-hmm. combined with the benefits of you know, your approach to Elasticsearch hosting, you know, with the different, um, using the various providers and trying mm-hmm. to give options that are co-located to the extent possible. I think that's, I think some combination of those is a good idea. Definitely. Cool. Well, if, uh, someone wants to learn more about QBox or give it a shot or anything else, what should they do? Go to qbox.io and um, you can get in touch with us. There's some information on the site. Um, you can sign up. There's a free credit to get started so you can uh, play with Elasticsearch and uh, not have to pay for anything. So go to our website, check us out, get in touch. All right, and what about you personally if someone wants to connect with you on Twitter or email or whatever? Um, not, not the most active tweeter, um, email, you can check me out at bin at qbox.io, um, and very responsive on there, so I'll definitely get back to whoever contacts me. You're not on Twitter, huh? I, you know, it's, it's, I, I am on Twitter, but it's almost like to a point where I don't give out my handle because I haven't posted in like two years. Uh, <laughs> so it's not like a political statement that you're making by not no, being on no, Twitter. No, not at all. <laughs> it's funny because I, I check Twitter constantly um, for the purpose of news and um, people talking about QBox, but I just personally, I guess I don't have that much interesting to say. <laughs> I don't know. You seem to you seem to do pretty well in this talk. <laughs> oh, maybe I should start tweeting. Who knows? There's there's demand for Ben on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thanks so much. If uh, someone wants to connect with me on Twitter, I'm barely known. <laughs>